0: Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode we visit more of Southern Scotland, taking in a pink palace that was once the only place in the world where you could see a Rembrandt, a Holbein and a Da Vinci simultaneously, a lock where history was made, the romantic abbey where the world's first sweetheart lies, the modest birthplace of Scotland's national poet, and the only place in Britain visited by the King. Or was it? Stop 1. Drumlanrig Castle, Dumfriesia.
1: If you lie on your back underneath the 1670s silver chandelier on the staircase, it must be the only place in the world where you can see simultaneously a Rembrandt,
0: a Holbein and a Leonardo da Vinci. So did the late Duke of Buccleuch advise his guests when showing them around Drumlanrig Castle, the seat of the Douglas line of the Montague Douglas Scott family, Dukes of Buccleuch and Queensbury. Alas, this extraordinary artistic contortion is no longer viable, for in 2003, in Britain's biggest ever art theft, the da Vinci painting, Madonna of the Yarn Winder, worth an estimated £30 million, was stolen by two men posing as tourists, who overpowered a young female tour guide and lifted the painting from its wall mounting, while assuring two startled tourists from New Zealand, who were witness to the scene, Not to worry, love, we're the police. This is just practice. They then climbed out of a window, plonked the painting in the boot of their getaway car, a white VW Golf, and sped off. Duke was heartbroken, for Madonna of the Yardwinder, which had been in the family for 250 years, was his favourite and the centrepiece of his magnificent art collection, and he would often take it with him when he moved between homes, Bow Hill, further east in the borders in Selkirkshire, and Boughton House in Northamptonshire. In 2007, the painting sensationally turned up discovered in the offices of a prestigious Glasgow law firm after a police sting operation. But it was, alas, too late. The ninth Duke of Buccleuch had died one month before aged 83. Madonna of the Yardwinder is now in the safekeeping of the Scottish National Gallery in Edinburgh. The scene of the theft The spectacular Drumlanrig Castle, known as the Pink Palace, stands on a high ridge overlooking the River Nith, and was constructed of pink sandstone between 1679 and 1689. Built around a square courtyard with a square turreted tower in each corner, Drumlanrig is one of the most beautiful castles in a land of beautiful castles. Despite this beauty, the man who built it, William Douglas, first Duke of Queensbury, spent only one night there, for he was a man of ill health and ill temper. And when he arrived at his new home, he decided that Drum Lanrig was too remote from his doctors in Edinburgh. So he packed his bags, or rather his manservant did, and went back to Edinburgh, to Queensbury House on the Royal Mile, today part of the Scottish Parliament. And he never returned. The Queensburys, their title comes from a prominent peak in the nearby Lowther Hills, were a rum lot, never less than interesting. The second duke was known as the Union Duke for his role in procuring the Treaty of Union between Scotland and England in 1707, for which he became very unpopular with the Jacobites in Scotland. And when his son and heir, James, went mad and ate a kitchen boy after roasting him on a spit, Some of the Union duke's opponents saw it as a symbolic punishment for what they regarded as a treacherous act. His second son, who became the third duke, was, on the recommendation of his wife, a patron of the arts, in particular of the poet and playwright John Gay, author of The Beggar's Opera. The fourth duke was a notorious bounder and rake who dedicated his life to gambling and the turf, and became known as Old Q, or the Goat of Piccadilly. His greatest pleasure was young ladies, especially young prima donnas, and in pursuit of this high calling, Old Q became a patron of the Italian opera, showing a kindly concern for a number of teenage singers with names such as La Zamperini or La Rena. Or La Tondino. Such qualities made Old Q a shoe-in for Sir Francis Dashwood's Hellfire Club, at whose nocturnal gatherings in the caves of High Wycombe he was able to fully indulge himself. In 1798, in order to pay for the dowry of a girl called Maria Fagniani, who he believed was his daughter, Old Q cut down vast numbers of trees at Drumlanrig, earning the wrath of the poet Burns, who wrote a searing poem about it on the window of a nearby inn. Verses on the destruction of the woods near Drumlanrig. In his later years, old Q retired to his house on Piccadilly in London, where he spent many fruitful hours sitting at the bow window, admiring the girls passing by outside, while his butler called out their names. His grace's horse was kept tethered in readiness at the door in case he should need to ride out in pursuit of some particularly fine young gal. Eventually, however, despite maintaining his libido by bathing in ass's milk scented with almonds while partaking of hot buttered muffins plucked from the mouths of his dairymaids, old Q reached a stage in life where he found his window seat so restful that he no longer felt the need to move from it. An acquaintance, who went out to India to make his fortune, returned to find Old Q sitting in exactly the same spot as when he had left ten years earlier. Old Q died at the age of 85, unsurprisingly of severe flux. Despite fathering any number of children, Old Q never married, and the dukedom of Queensbury passed to his cousin, the Duke of Buccleuch while a separate title, the Marquesset of Queensbury, passed to another cousin, Charles Douglas. A later Marquis of Queensbury, the ninth, John Sholto Douglas, was a keen boxing enthusiast and sponsored the publication of the Twelve Rules for conducting a boxing match, which became known as the Queensbury Rules, an expression still used today to describe fair play and it was this, Marquess of Queensbury, who had the playwright Oscar Wilde imprisoned for having an affair with his son, Lord Alfred Douglas, known as Bosie. Drumlanrig Castle went with the Dukedom of Queensbury to the Bucleus, who, it must be said, have had one or two Batty family members of their own. The wife of the 8th duke had a particular terror of bats, which were known to roost in the vast cavernous rooms of the castle, and one night she was walking through the great hall in the dark when she was assailed by a flock of bats. She ran wildly around the room trying to fend them off, shrieking, ''Bats! Bats!'' And after a minute or two a solemn voice spoke out of the darkness. ''You call to your grace?'' It was the butler, Mr. Batts. Stop two Dal Swinton Lock, Dumfrieshire.
1: We slick it, gowdy, timorous beastie. Man's a man's a man. The best laid schemes of mice and man. Oh, what some power that gypti us to see herself as others see us! My love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. But to see her was to love her. her rank is but the ginest Man's inhumanity to man. My heart is in the Highlands.
0: A fine autumn morning. October 14th, 1788, a day after which the world would never be the same again. The bucolic surroundings of the man made lock in the grounds of Dalswinton House near Dumfries echo to the unfamiliar wheezing sounds of a rudimentary steam engine, intermingled with the nervous patter of banker and entrepreneur Patrick Miller, engineer William Symington, artist Alexander Naismith and the poet Robert Burns, passengers all on the first ever steamboat journey in the world. Glasgow-born Patrick Miller was for most of his life a director of the Bank of Scotland, but at heart he was an inventor, particularly of anything to do with boats. He designed and built a twin-hulled warship for the Swedish Navy called the Experiment of Leith, powered by hand-cranked paddle wheels set between the hulls. For this, he was rewarded by King Gustaf of Sweden with a golden box filled with turnip seeds, which produced a yellow-fleshed turnip of a type we now call a Swede. Rather cleverly, since they come from Sweden. Miller's Swedish turnips started the fashion in Scotland for turnips or neeps as an accompaniment for haggis. Anyway, when Miller came across an experimental steam engine designed by the engineer William Symington for use in the Lead Hill mines where Symington's father and brother worked, Miller commissioned Symington to build him a boat, similar in design to the Experiment of Leith, but with the paddle wheels powered by steam rather than hand-cranked. And it was this boat that set sail on Dalswinton Lock that fine October morning in 1788. Robert Burns was invited along, since he was, at the time, a tenant of Patrick Miller's at Ellisland Farm just up the road from Dalswinton. Alexander Naismith, the artist, was a protégé of Miller's and shared the banker's interest in engineering, so was asked to help crew the boat. Naismith was also a great friend of Burns, and his rare contemporary portrait of Burns is famous as the best-known portrait of Scotland's national bard and has been reproduced across the world in every conceivable form, from shortbread tins to postage stamps. The trial of this, the world's first steamboat, was a success and the boat carried its motley crew across the lock at a hair-raising five miles per hour. Miller alas soon ran out of money and patience to carry on with the project, but Symington went on to build the world's first working steamboat for Lord Dundas, governor of the Forth and Clyde Canal Company, which he judiciously named the Charlotte Dundas after the boss's daughter. William Symington's steam engine can today be seen in the Science Museum in London. Swedes can be found in every good grocer's shop. and Naismith portrait of Robert Burns can be found in the Scottish National Portrait Gallery and on a biscuit tin near you. Stop 3, Sweetheart Abbey, Kercoubrisha. In 1273, the Lady de Vorgela, descendant of the ancient lords of Galloway, founded an abbey in an idyllic wooded valley set between the dark and lonely mountain known as Criffel and the estuary of the River Nith on the Solway Firth, in memory of her husband John de Balliol. The village that grew up to serve the Abbey was called, appropriately enough, New Abbey, and is today a place of great charm and beauty, its winding street lined with typically Scottish single-storey whitewashed stone cottages. The abbey was eventually destroyed, like so many others at the Scottish Reformation, and the ruins are stark and towering, the shell remarkably intact, and when the low western sun strikes the warm red sandstone, the abbey positively glows. It is a blissful spot. The province of Galloway used to cover the traditional counties of Kirkcubrish and Wigtanshire, along with the southern part of Ayrshire and the western part of Dumfrieshire and today forms the western section of the Dumfries and Galloway region. Galloway means Land of the Stranger Gales and was settled in the 8th century by Gaels from Ireland. In those times the people of Galloway looked to Ireland rather than Scotland and even today Galloway maintains a distinctive character. Indeed, in the early 13th century, Alan, Lord of Galloway, led the English and Scottish settlement of Ulster, returning to where the people of Galloway had originally come from 500 years before. The first Lord of Galloway, who we know much about, is Fergus of Galloway, from whom all Fergusons, or sons of Fergus, around the world descend and who ruled the province for some 50 years in the 12th century, managing to preserve a semi-independence by maintaining good relations with both King David of Scotland and Henry I of England. Lady de Vorgela was Fergus's great-great-granddaughter and in 1223 she married a powerful Norman knight called John de Balliol, whose family came from Bayeul in France, thus bringing together two great estates. In 1263, John endowed funds to set up a hostel for poor students in Oxford, to which de Vorghler later added of her plenty, and the hostel grew up to be Balliol College, Oxford. In 1292, John de Balliol and de Vogela's son, another John de Balliol, became King of Scotland, having been chosen by Edward I over Robert Bruce, Lord of Annandale, grandfather of Robert the Bruce. John served merely as Edward's puppet king and was soon deposed by the Scots, who signed a treaty with France to help them against the English, which became known as the Old Alliance, an alliance that has been informally resurrected many times since. But back to the Lady de Vorgela, when her husband John died in 1268, Vogela had his sweetheart embalmed and placed in an ivory casket banded with silver, which she took with her everywhere. At meal times she would lay a place at the table for the casket and hand out her husband's share of the food to the poor. And when Vogela herself died in 1290, she was buried, clutching the casket to her breast. In the new abbey she had founded seventeen years before. New Abbey became known as the Abbey of Dulcicor, the Abbey of the Sweet Heart, and more commonly Sweetheart Abbey. Thus did the Lady de Vaugela provide us not only with one of the oldest and most prestigious of Oxford's colleges, but also a new expression for the English language. Incidentally, as a purely topical aside, New Abbey is the burial place of Sir William Paterson, one of the founders in 1694 of the Bank of England, and architect of the disastrous Darien Scheme, a plan to establish an independent Scottish colony in Panama. The plan bankrupted the Scottish government and hastened the Union of England and Scotland in 1707. Topical
1: Stop 4. Alloway,
0: air.
1: What's some power the gift dearest to see ourself as others see us?
0: What others see of Robert Burns is every bit the glamorous poet, dashing and handsome with dark burning eyes, a drinker, a womaniser and a brilliant wordsmith who perfectly captured the Scottish spirit in dialect and song. There is no doubt that Robert Burns, rabbi to his friends, is for many the face of Scotland. His birthday is remembered with Burns Night, celebrated by the Scottish diaspora and others around the world on 25th of January, and his poems contain lines that are quoted everywhere.
1: the best laid schemes of mice and men. My love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. But to see her was to love her. Wee sleek it curdy, timorous beastie. Nursing her wrath to keep it warm. Man's inhumanity to man. The rank is but the Guinness stamp. A man's a man for all that. My heart is in the Highlands.
0: Without doubt, his most famous work is Old Lang Syne, based on an old Scottish song and traditionally used to bid farewell to the old year on New Year's Eve. Extraordinarily, Old Lang Syne is familiar to every child in, of all places, Japan, as the tune for a traditional song called Light of the Fireflies, sung at the conclusion of school graduation ceremonies. It is also played in supermarkets and on village streets in Japan to indicate closing time, and many Japanese people are shocked to learn that what they believe to be an old Japanese folk tune is in fact an old Scottish folk tune. It was most probably brought to Japan in the 19th century by the Scottish Samurai Thomas Blake Glover from Aberdeenshire, who travelled to Japan at the age of 21 and introduced the railways, coal mining and industrialization to Japan, helping to found the Mitsubishi Corporation, and whose life provided the inspiration for Puccini's opera Madame Butterfly. Glover's Japanese wife Tsura wore kimonos decorated with butterflies. But I digress. Scotland's national poet was born in a low, thatched biggin, built by his father's own hand in the village of Alloway, outside Ayr, on 25th of January 1759. The cottage now forms part of the appropriately named Robert Burns Birthplace Museum, and the village, which is the setting for the denouement of Burns' much loved poem Tamashanta, has become something of a Robert Burns theme park although nonetheless peaceful and attractive for that. In the poem, Tam is riding home from the pub, drunk on his grey mare May, when he is chased across the Brigadoon by a coven of witches who have been dancing provocatively around the haunted old Kirk of Alloway. Incidentally, the lead witch, called Nanny, had caught Tam's attention because she was wearing a revealing Cutty Sark, or short shirt, the garment giving its name to the famous Cutty Sark tea clipper, now on display in Dry Dock at Greenwich. The Brigadoon, a 15th century bridge across the River Doon, still elegantly spans the river, carrying awestruck pedestrians from a hotel garden into a field. While the old Kirk is an eerie, roofless ruin, lurking under dark, soundless, dank trees, which the good folk of Alloway bathe in a sinister green light at night to make it appear more haunted than it already is. Burns' father is buried there. Just down the road from the Kirk is the Burns Monument. Wherever you go in Scotland when you see a towering monument, you can be sure it will commemorate either William Wallace or Robert Burns, and the people of Alloway have not skimped. The monument to their famous son is colossal, 60 feet high, with a triangular base supporting a circle of Corinthian columns, topped with a cupola and a gilt tripod.
1: A man's a man for all that,
0: as the poet might say. Stop 5. Prestwick. Ayrshire. Prestwick, on the Ayrshire coast southwest of Glasgow, vies with Tane in Ross and Cromarty as the oldest borough in Scotland, having been a free borough of barony since beyond the memory of man, according to a charter of 1600. Mind you, the town seems to have always been ahead of its time. Robert the Bruce was cured of leprosy after drinking from a well in what was then the small fishing village of Prestwick. And in gratitude, he founded a leper hospital there, making Prestwick arguably Scotland's first spa town. And in 1860, Prestwick Old Course hosted the first ever Open Golf Championship the first tournament of its kind and the oldest golf tournament in the world. It was won by Willie Park, senior, who thus became the first champion golfer of the year. He went on to win the Open four times and Prestwick went on to host the first eleven Open championships before the tournament was shared around, with the old course at St Andrews becoming the second Open venue in 1873. Prestwick has hosted the Open 24 times in all, the last occasion being in 1925. In 1931, Prestwick became home to Scotland's largest swimming pool, the Lido, built on an old coal mine and with room for 1,200 swimmers. Alas, the pool was closed and demolished in 1972. In 1945, Prestwick Airport became Scotland's first civilian transatlantic airport, having, during World War II, served as a combined RAF and US Air Force base for refueling US Air Force craft flying the Atlantic. And for a long time, Prestwick was the only Scottish airport allowed to operate transatlantic flights, since it has a far lower incidence of fog than any other British airport, even today, It is the only guaranteed folk-free airport in Britain. The airport developed out of an airfield founded in 1935 by flying enthusiasts David McIntyre and the Marquess of Clydesdale, the first men to fly over Mount Everest. It was the Marquess of Clydesdale, by then 14th Duke of Hamilton, who Rudolf Ness, Hitler's deputy, was thought to be flying to sea when he parachuted into Renfrewshire in 1941. But Prestwick's greatest claim to fame is as the only place in Britain where the King, Elvis Presley, Ever set foot, allegedly. On March the 3rd, 1960, Presley passed through Prestwick on his way home to America after being discharged from the US Army in Germany. And while his plane was refueling, he spent an hour and a half mixing with the American base staff and the lucky few fans who had somehow found out that he was coming. There is a Hollywood-style gold star plaque set in the floor of the terminal building commemorating the occasion. I said allegedly, for in 2008 the British rock star Tommy Steele confirmed a long-running rumour that he and Elvis had driven around London together when Elvis paid a secret flying visit to England in 1958. So where was it, Prestwick or London, or both? Well, that concludes our tour of Southern Scotland. In the next episode we visit Glasgow and the Western Central Belt, taking in... The pioneers of Scotland's largest city, the biggest echo in Britain, the cradle of the Royal House of Stuart, the birthplace of television and Scotland's first in flight. This has been an I Never Knew That production brought to you by Christopher Wynn with guest star Rupert Van Sittert. Find out more at Christopher I Never Knew that dot com. and check out the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert to my executive producer Jeremy Conrad and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast please rate and review and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that.